podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the weekend and it's Lizzie Dill. I'm in the hot seat today. Uh, coming up later in the show, we've got Nathan Powell, who's talking about his new play, The Spine. We've got Ty Hughes from The Athletic. He's going to talk to us about his last few pieces, particularly a really, really good one uh, on Liverpool players and religion, obviously off the back of that video with Firmino and Alisson getting baptised in Firmino's swimming pool. But it's really, really interesting. So that's still to come. And we've got Rory Smith, who's going to be speaking to Neil on whether the fact the league is weaker than ever because Liverpool are absolutely flying. Um, but before we've got all that, we are going to touch on last night's game and in the room I've got Mike Kearney, I've got Claire Brookfield and I've got Ian Salmon. Mike I'm going to start with you, it was a it was a really tough game last night. I know as Liverpool fans we we sort of anticipated it beforehand but did you think it was actually harder than, than you thought in the first place? Um, I, I thought we'd just be better and that's probably because of what's gone before, nothing against Wolves or nothing like that. It, it was definitely a tougher game than I expected, although I, if it makes any sense, I knew it would be one of our toughest remaining games. I just didn't think it it would be as tough as it was. Some of our players had off nights, but managed to turn it round. Um, they they they're weird, like they're good, but they're really weird in terms of the way they set up and and, and attack. Like it 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 should be very much easier to beat them than what it is, but it's not, and that's probably why they are where they are in the league at the moment. They're beating all the teams that are. Are competing for where they are, but they've also drawn a lot of games as well, so they're not they're not losing. So that they're, they're sort of like us in the habit of winning and, and not getting beat, which is only going to bode well for them in the future. Um, I'm glad that the two games are done. I'm glad that we won both. I knew we, I knew we'd get through. I, n- I never, I never thought we'd lose, but at at some point last night, I was thinking, um, you know what, I might take a point here because it'll be it'd be. It'll be just done out of the way and we don't have to cope with any more of this. But, you know, we we just kept going, kept going and I've got the goal. I, I, look, that goal killed Wolves. There was a few minutes left, but I never felt scared at all that we were going to concede and drop the two points. We were we were brilliant all night and I, I thought Henderson for me, as well as Alisson, who, who kept us in the games at points. Yeah, it was brilliant. Some fantastic saves, but Henderson for me just, just kept everyone's level and, and made everyone, forced everyone to get to his level and, and got us through. Ian, the first half was a bit mad, wasn't it? Um, obviously, we get the goal, Henderson on the set piece. Um, Mane goes off injured to Kumi Minamino, comes on for his debut in the league. Um, the shape looked quite decent first half, I'd say, for Liverpool. It didn't look necessarily in the first half that Wolves were too much on top of us. We looked in control. But then obviously it all sorts of changed at half time when Wolves come back out and, and Liverpool changed their shape as well. So what were your thoughts going into half time when we were 1 0 up? Going into half time, it was, as you said, a bit of a weird game because there's a point where um, one of the panel, I think it might have been Peter Crouch, said it's a really good game of football. And I was looking at it going, are you sure? Because I don't <laughs> think it is, you know. I, I'm, I'm really not sure there's a, fo- a game of football going on here. Because um, the pace seemed to drop. After we scored, mm. we seemed to kind of retreat into ourselves. And a lot of that was because, you know, Wolves clearly weren't just going to lie down let's walk over them. But I think I'm going to contradict myself. For about 10 minutes after we score, we don't drop. Because for about 10 minutes after we score, it looks like we could get four or five. And we look like we're going to score with every attack that we put in. And and then we don't. And then we drop off. Mm. And then Wolves start to look like a stronger team. And obviously... It looks like a half-time. Klopp's red the way Wolves are playing, seeing what impact they're having. Obviously, we've lost Mane, and it was one of those games that makes you realise 
as, as stupid and obvious as this is going to sound, how much football is about teamwork and partnerships because you realise that the effect of Mane in front of Robbo makes Robbo mm-hmm. better than Robbo. Yeah. Well, not better than Robbo is, but it gives Robbo licence to yeah. be the yeah. player he can be. And when you move Minamino over to that side, then he hasn't he hasn't got that that protection. So moving at the beginning of the second half to what looked like a very orthodox four four two, with Oxlade Chamberlain down the left, still didn't give Robbo that that protection, especially when you're playing against a guy who's ridiculous, um, basically like built like Shakiri but runs like Sadio Mane, um, and people just you know even our best players bounce off him. The the, the guy's incredible. Um, and playing at the top of his game, you know, we've known about him for a couple of years, but he's playing at the top of his game. And we ne- we didn't feel in control, but we didn't feel out of control. So it didn't feel like Wolves ever actually controlled the game, but it felt like they were always a threat. And at one all, I don't think we could have complained if Wolves had got a second, because there were periods there where they could have easily got a second. I don't think we could have complained too much if we'd lost the game. Mm. And we couldn't have complained with the draw. But at the same time, we deserve to win, which is the weird season we're having because we're, we're finding, well, weird season, it's a glorious season. Um, we're finding ways to win every single time we have to. And obviously Bobby's goal is, is a moment of genius. And no one's talking about what Salah does to set that goal up. But that, that nobody in the media has mentioned Salah this moment because Salah apparently had an absolutely appalling game. Um, but he dribbles through about 15 players. He's dancing around the edge of the area. The ball bounces off a Wolves player to Henderson to set to set up Bobby. Um, but Salah's involvement in that makes that whole scenario happen. So it is the ball before the ball is important there. And, you know, to revisit what Mike said, Jordan Henderson at the moment is playing as probably the most complete midfielder in the game. He's doing absolutely everything and he's doing it at the highest level. He's not just having his best season. He's, for me, he's having one of the great seasons for any footballer because of how he's actually influencing the team, how he's influencing the game, every single game, how he's dragging everybody with him. Um, it's notable that all the, um, the Henson haters on Twitter this morning have gone very quiet and started picking on Robbo instead. <laughs> so it's like, well done, lads, you're all idiots. Go away. You don't deserve football. Um, but yeah, so it could have gone any way and any, any result would have been justified. But us winning is obviously the right result. Um, but Wolves are clearly far and away the hardest team we played. They're, they're, they're a cracking football team, brilliant manager and individual threats all over the pitch. Yeah, um, we're going to come back to Jordan Henson in a minute, Claire. But I just wanted to bring up um, Mane's injury. So obviously Mane goes off in the, was it about the 30th minute, was it? Was it, was it, was it around then? Yeah, I can't really seconds, Yeah, 30 30 30 second minute. Big blow for Liverpool, he just sort of stops. You could tell that he, he was struggling. He, yeah. he gestures to the bench. And at that moment in time, I thought, well, that's it, Debo Harigi. And I was really quite surprised to see Takumi Minamino make his debut. Um, but just before we go to speak about Minamino, just want to talk about the importance of Sadio Mane and, like Ian, Ian referenced there, how much Sadio Mane going off the pitch impacted the game and how much the, the left-hand side particularly felt uh, his absence. Yeah, I think uh, for me, Mane's massively stepped up. He's been amazing all season, don't get me wrong. But uh, particularly, I thought in the Spurs game, the amount of tracking back that he did that perhaps we might not have always seen him do. Um, I think you're really right about the Robbo. Um, I think a couple of games perhaps he's not been perhaps at his best, but I do think um, Mane being missing really affected his game last night. Um, 
I think it's all about confidence, isn't it? Yeah. When, you know, when, when one of your best players goes off, you can't help but think, oh God, what's going to happen now? But um, to be fair to Jürgen, to throw throw the young lad on to give him his debut is is really, really brave. Um, I think Mane will be fine. He's probably played a little bit too much football. Um, I think, I think just going back to Mike's point about like where we were as as it being a tough game. I think perhaps the media have really hyped up. Obviously, last night was the game that everyone kind of feared that we might drop points. And even I thought you saw it at Spurs and a tiny bit at United. Just that these are the games we've got to get through. If we get mm-hmm. through this period, that's it. That's it. Now we've done the hard work. And I thought. You know, the relief, I mean, I screamed at my roommate last night when that final whistle went. It just, you know, I know we don't say, Lizzie, you don't say it's done. And I haven't really, but for me, being 16 points after last night was my point where I thought, I think that's it now. I think it's, I think it's job done. It was a, it was a huge win. Uh, and Mike, I just want to go back to, uh, I want to give, I do want to give a bit of credit to Wolves. They're a good outfit. They, they played well last night. And I would say it was our hardest game this season in terms of it was the hardest three points that, we had to earn Adama Traore. He shows up. He, he's brilliant, and obviously for the goal, it's a bit unfortunate. Andy Robertson um, sort of falls falls over, doesn't he? Lets him get through, but it's it's a brilliant goal, brilliant fin- finish by Jimenez, who I think also played really well. Connor Cody, you know what you're getting with him. They're just they are a really good side, aren't they? And I think they are. I think I would say personally, and I know you're probably hearing this on the Anfield draft quite a lot, but I think watching that last night, they're probably the fourth best team in England. I'd say at the moment, they're better than Spurs, they're better than Chelsea, they're better than United. Yeah, I, I to be honest, I think Wolves will probably go go far in Europe. And, and with this manager, they're starting to put things together in the league now. They've got a good little squad going there. They've, they've sort of built it slowly but steadily. With Denzonka is a signing where they've loaned him first and signed him fully. Jimenez was the same, it was only a loan. Even Johnny from uh, Atletico, they got him all loans and then made permanent when they realised that yeah, these fit, these work in our system, these are good players. Raul Jimenez for me, I mentioned it on the team talk. I know <coughs> Tayore is going to get all, all the press and there's, there's divided opinion on him. I, I'm sort of neutral on him. I think he's good in moments. I think he's really good in moments, to be honest. And the, the improvement that Nuno has got out of him is quite frankly ridiculous because he, he was just a kick it and run sort of player now he's starting to get better with his final ball but the, their goal yes they comes from Jimenez for me he's superb at holding yeah. it up he flicks it out wide gets in the box and makes all the really moves well. doesn't he yeah. it's and the winning it with his chest in midfield isn't yeah. it he's, he's absolutely superb Jimenez and the way they set up is at the moment get it into Jimenez and he'll either get it off to like Neto or mm. Johnny on one side Doherty or Doherty sorry and um, Traore on the other and He's constantly doing that for them, and he, he, it's a really good header. It's got to be to beat Alison Becker because he just saves everything that he can. So he physically can't get near it. It's a good goal. What, I know what Ian and, and, and Claire are saying about it was, and, and myself to be honest, it was a tough game. It it was one of our toughest games. It, by the time we get to City, where it's, I think it's eight or nine games from here now, it's. It's like what? Well, how, how many games we got left? Fifteen, as we speak. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. as we speak, we got fifteen. We got West Ham, then Southampton. The, then we'll only have thirteen games left. So when we get to City, we've got single-digit games left, give or take. We'll probably have a fifteen-point lead plus. We're gonna everything goes to plan. We'll have a nineteen-point lead, which is crazy. And I think I mentioned it before in the office. As we came that before we came down, we played Southampton before City played Tottenham. That's twenty-two points if it all goes the way it's yeah. been going. At, at some point, if not now already, it's going to feel unassailable for teams chasing us. Mm. And 
we've just been relentless. And I think Wolves have given us everything there last night. They've played us twice now where we've sort of been a bit tired, both of us. I know we've had rests in between um, this period, but you can sort of see it's at points now we're starting to get a bit tired. I think this break that's coming up after the Southampton game is going to do us really, really good. And I, I'm just, like I said before, I'm glad we've got Wolves out the way. Yeah. I, I think we'll batter them if we if we were, like, we're a good side, they're a good side, but fully fresh, I think we'd batter anyone in this league. So that, it's, it's not like good insight saying that. I was just going to say about um, going back to their good players, I think Wolves should be a little bit worried because the mm. likes of United, Spurs, Chelsea, they all need strikers. Mm. And, you know, to me, that's quite an obvious place to start looking. They're proven players. Yeah. You know, how do Wolves then start to deal with big boys coming in with big money to start taking some of their best players away? I mean, it does depend, obviously. It's quite, um, at the moment, you'd say fairly realistic looking at the league that they could finish fourth. And and in that case, then they'll get, they'll be in Europe themselves and the big boys won't be. Um, you know, I want to come back to you on Henderson. You, you, you've just spoke about him there, but... So he starts off in, in that number six role, which he's been playing so unbelievably well since Fabinho's been injured. Uh, and then we see the introduction of Fabinho come on about, I think it was about on 70, and we see Henderson get pushed a bit further forward. And just when you think Jordan Henderson's been performing at his highest level, all of a sudden he steps it up even more when he gets pushed further forward and he gets the assist for the goal as well. Yeah, he's... Um... He's an example at the moment. He's an example of what, what a midfielder can do. He's an example of what a footballer can do with complete total commitment to his game. Um, it's always been talked about. I, I I worked with a lad a few years ago. At the time, Andy Carroll came to the club um, who knew um, knew Kevin Nolan and um, and thereby knew Andy Carroll. Um, and the talk from inside was that Henderson is the perfect professional. All he does is football. There's nothing else. He is just completely focused on football all the time and he's a player who's got better and better as he's got older as you know lots of players do you know Carragher became a much better player in his late 20s Jordan Henderson is doing the same thing he's um he's also over the last since Fabinho got injured he's not just taken on the the number six role he's kind of made it an augmented number six because he's he's still breaking to the right where he'd been playing previously mm. still doing the same jobs so he's kind of been doing the two jobs at the same time and last night when we go to that flat four and he's sitting alongside Genie, then he's sitting alongside Fabinho. He's got that, since Fabinho's there, he's got that license to push forward again. He is, he's popping up in places that you wouldn't expect him to. Yeah, he's going to the touchline and putting crosses in now, which I, I don't think has happened at any point in his career. Um, but for him to come out last night, one, to score the first headed goal he's ever scored in his entire career, <laughs> even if it was shoulder. technically his shoulder. <laughs> uh, but then... That again, that little pass because it's only a little pass for for Firmino, but it's such, it it's so the right pass. It's um, it's as crucial a pass as Matip's was in the Champions League fi- final. It's just that little touch going. That's the ball you he's want. He's in and around. He's anticipating yeah. it, isn't yeah. he? He's. I I think Liverpool were like wasps last night. It just felt like they were always there. They were always trying to press the. And Jordan Enson was the perfect exa- perfect example of that. And do you think now? especially in this run of form, he's as integral to this team and to that midfield as Virgil van Dijk and Alison Becker. Yes, completely. Um, I was thinking this because I was listening to the pink um, in the car on the way in and 
I think he's as integral to this team. And it's the first time I've thought this, but at this moment, people are going to shoot me down in flames, um, but at this moment, he's as integral to this team and he's having as much of an influence on this team as Gerard did. And he's doing the same leading by example captain's role as Gerard did through his career. He's grown into that player that people thought he could never, ever be. He, he's absolutely vital. It's, you know, it's easy to ignore how vital Henderson has been in the past because Rodgers was very open about in 13-14. We don't win the league, because not because of Gerard's slip, but because of Henderson's red card. Yeah. And if Henderson's available for the last three games, we win the league because if the slip happens, he's there covering it and it wouldn't matter. So he's, he's always been influential. He's always given everything to the club. He's always been one of our most underrated I think the way it's looking at the moment, that there's a real groundswell that seems to be growing um, of certainly him being at least shortlisted for Player of the Year. You would imagine if you're a pro, the, the votes going round about now, don't they? So the pros are voting for PFA Player of the Year round about now. You would imagine he's in with a hell of a show mm. for it because if you're a professional footballer and you're looking at it, you're going, I know what that lad's doing and I would love to be playing alongside that lad because he's doing everything for the team. So you think he's got a good show to that. The writers, the writers will probably go for De Bruyne, let's be honest, because they, they, they like the, the class and the sizzle and you know, he is a fantastic footballer. But Henderson deserves one of those awards. Mm. And Henderson, I think, is at the moment, at this moment, our most important player. I don't think many people will argue with you. Um, Claire, I just want to touch on Firmino as well. We've got to talk about Bobby. Um, he doesn't like scoring at Anfield. He's not scored at no, Anfield this season. <laughs> um, but he's banging them in for fun away from uh, away from home. So that's his 10th away goal this season. And he's had five in his last four. I mean, there was a period where a couple of people were talking about Firmino, whether he was doing enough, whether he was popping up with the with you know the right amount of goals. Just but- say Paul Senior. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, do you know what? Looking back, it's a bit of a fair comment. They are a front three, um, and and they, they should all be scoring goals. And there was a period where he wasn't, but now he's popping up and he's scoring the important ones. I mean, we're looking at Spurs and we're looking at that last night. I mean, we're talking about Henderson being integral, but I tell you what, our front three, Bobby Firmino at the minute, yeah, unbelievable. For, yeah, for me, I think when you watch our front three, because everyone says they are amazing and they are and you expect them all to be banging in goals all the time and it just seems to go in like waves it'll be a couple of weeks Mane then Salah then Bobby but to me when you say about Henderson being important in that front three I think Bobby is the main man he may not get the goals but he does so much hard work that no one seems to give him credit for in the press Um, some of the tricks that he did against United I mean he just embarrassed them didn't he but um and to, you know, that goal, for that goal to be chalked off seemed criminal to me because it was such a wonder strike. And yeah, he, he seems to be the man when we need him under pressure. Um, and perhaps sometimes where Salah misses some of them easy goals against United, you know, that one should have been dead set. Bobby is just so cool and calm under pressure. I mean, it was not any, it was, a, I thought that was an amazing strike last night. It was a brilliant it, finish. You know, the footwork to just, and to know to put it in that top corner, um, I think he's the one that gives Mane and Salah the license to thrill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think some of the other teams have got wise that he probably is the one that ticks our front three over. And that's why we get so, he gets so much time on the ball. I mean, we have, we, I wish we had all the time in the world, but um, 
the thing is, like, you're looking at Salah, who everyone said didn't have his best game last night, but he comes up with the the important touch, you know, for the Firmino goal. Firmino under pressure as well. He seems like he, he can just deal with any situation. And just before we wrap up, I've just got one or two more things. I have to, um, I feel like I could go on about all of them. This is the thing. It must be like this <laughs> each week. But it might, we, we do have to talk about Alisson. I think we've got to give a shout out to the Hubert. I mean, makes that unbelievable save at 1-1, doesn't he? And he's cool, calm and composed. There was... There was sometimes where he, he does that Allison thing where he makes it look like it's a little bit nerve and you wear the grounds. Like you hear all the Wolves fans going, oh, and all the Liverpool fans like, Sam, like the, the reason he's doing this is because he's proven to us and everyone else, listen, I'm the best keeper in the world and I know it, there's nothing to worry about. But I mean, it seems like he's getting better every game if that's even possible. <coughs> um, there's a point in that game yesterday where we're all flapping a bit because it's one all and we're under a bit of pressure and then Gomez lays it back to Allison, and you think, oh, Oh, what's happening here? And then Alison just rolls it to Van Zyke, who's in the box. And they all have like a little triangle. Yeah. And then he passes it out and everyone goes, oh, we're calm again now. <laughs> like, and he's probably just sitting there going, I don't know what you all do. All you divvies are thinking there. I'm, I'm absolutely calm. I'll roll this ball out. We'll get on the break. And the fact that we can use him as a player in them situations, as well as him being the world's best goalkeeper, because he, he is. Look, there's, there's been times where De Gea has been the world's best goalkeeper. You know, Casillas at Real Madrid. There's lots of goalkeepers who've been really good for a long period of time. Uh, Alison Becker now, he's he's come in and he's just him and Van Dijk as well as Robertson and Trent have sort of turned our defence into a, a real, real proper solid unit now. And the goalkeeper, as as we reference, everyone's referenced and and is the most obvious point to make has been the biggest change I think because you know we had a, we had a season with that defence. In front of Carius and Ominule, and everyone could just see that was the last. That was the last thing that we had to change for it to to really make a difference. Um, I I didn't expect it to be as big a difference as it was, but you know the scouting departments obviously know what to do, mm. and he's come in. He's he makes everything look dead easy. I don't think I've ever seen a save off him where you see the hairs off Henderson against the United, yeah. and you go back, you watch that back, and think, oh, he's just got his fingers to that. What a save! If Allison's making that save, he probably palms it like full palm my fingertips or even like just catches it because that's that's all he seems to do well you know that one last night that that save I'm talking about I honestly thought it'd come off the crossbar because you could hear the noise of it, it hitting him so hard I thought that's got to be off the post sorry not the crossbar off the post it was off Allison. I don't want to get him in the, the grid the strong save oh no the one that said, and, that, and that's it. full hand yeah, I thought yeah. it honestly yeah. thought it come off the post because of the noise. I just it was an unbelievable. Save. I, I'd I'd love to know his what his his spatial. I reckon he could drive a car with his eyes closed because his spatial <laughs> awareness, like his spatial awareness and position, and he's just always there. I tell you what, if there was anyone I trusted to drive a car with their eyes closed, it would be Alison or Van Dyke. I tell yeah. you that. Uh, just before we wrap up, I just want to. I'm going to throw this one out to you, um, and I'll start with you, Ian, and I want to just throw it out to you and see what you think. So, we talk about it each week. We're talking about it twice a week. Like I want to just. Say, what does this mean for the league now? I mean, we're 16 points clear with a game in hand. Our last six games. So I've been I've been talking all week about the last three. But actually, I look back and it's the last six. The last six games have been Leicester away, Wolves at home, Sheffield United at home, Spurs away, Man United at home and Wolves away. That's been our last six That's games. It's a massive and, six. And we have got 18 out of 18 with an Everton FA Cup tie thrown in there. I mean... And only conceded once. Look at that for a run. We haven't got a run after that difficult. In, after being in Qatar as well, which yeah. everyone yeah. said would affect us. We, we have not got a run that difficult now to the end of the season and we've just got the maximum amount of points. I mean, 
Ian, literally going into West Ham for the rest of the league, for Man City you were watching. What are they even thinking now? Well, City's City's next six are tough, aren't they? They've, yeah. they've got three biggies in there and we're looking at ours and go, it's 18 points. And everything that people said would affect us. We lost Fabinho, that'll affect you. We lost Allison in the first game of the season. Right, well, Liverpool are buggered, aren't they? Now we'll just keep clean sheets all over the place. This lad from West Ham's going to go and do a cracking job. And has done and has made crucial saves in every game he's played, including three in the first half against Everton in the FA Cup. Um, you know, we lose Matip. Oh, Gomez is coming back and he's rusty. Oh, look, Gomez is back to being the world's best central defender. You lose Fabinho, your midfield's buggered. Oh, oh look. Um, every time people think we're going to be weakened, going to Qatar is going to affect you. You're going to come back and you're going to be playing catch-up. No, we're so far ahead that nobody can catch us even when we skip two games in the space of a week. Um we are, I don't think it's, in terms of how it affects the league, I'm not asked by anybody else on earth. Um, their mentality is, is shot, everybody else's mentality is shot. They know, they know that we are looking absolutely untouchable at the moment and they know that whatever happens, City might be the only team who think they can get nearest, but to do that, they've got to be perfect until May and we've got to lose six games. We've only lost six in the last 96 games. So the chance of it happening are minimal. Um, but I don't think it affects what we do, and I think we're doing everything perfectly because we are taking the maximum one game at a time, and we've been doing that since day one of the season. Since day one of the season, every game has been a must-win game, and every game is still a must-win game because the rest of the job, and I, I, I keep banging on about this because I'm, I'm not having this, do you want to go unbeaten or do you want to get the maximum points or do you want to get a treble? You want the lot. You want everything. Why would you want anything less than everything from this? I want a treble from this team. I want them to go unbeaten for the entire season. I want them to get more points than anybody else has ever had. For them to be able to stand there and go, do you know what? Complain about VAR as much as you like. Complain about the rest of the league as much as you like. Just accept the fact that we beat everybody. Because if we beat West Ham, we've beaten everybody. And it's the first, it's yeah. last week of January. Yeah. We want to we beat the 100 points. And we want to beat the 100 points convincingly. We want to be unbeaten for the season. We want the Champions League again. And we want the FA Cup. I, I wasn't asked about the FA Cup until a couple of weeks ago. And there seems to be there. So I'm just kind of like, well, we've got Shrewsbury now. We might as well win the FA Cup as well. <laughs> well, we're going to come on to talk about Shrewsbury a bit later. But let's just wrap that up there for now. So I just want to end that part on by saying, by the way, Liverpool are in the top five teams in English football league history to go 40 games unbeaten. There's only Arsenal and Nottingham Forest who've got more at the moment, 42 and 49. So just bear that in mind when everyone's trying to talk about these records because this Liverpool team is absolutely setting them. Um, yeah, so just before we come on to talk about Shrewsbury, here's Neil Atkinson telling you a little bit more about the, Atle the Athletic, who are our main sponsor. As you know, they've got a podcast, um, which is really good. Uh, and here's a little insert from it. As part of our ongoing partnership with The Athletic, uh, we put the podcast that I went on uh, out this week. And there's just a little clip for you of one they've done uh, around Manchester City with our friend David Mooney. We've known David for years and worked really closely with him. Uh, got a real fondness for what he does and how he goes about his business, to be honest with you. Um, I think he's firstly very talented as a broadcaster, but also secondly, I think he's uh, he's very able to be quite open-minded about things that are happening, not just at Manchester City, but in the wider football sphere. And he started this podcast with uh, Sam Lee, uh, who writes about Manchester City for The Athletic, and it's called Why Always Us. It's an obvious uh, reference to Mario Balotelli there. Uh, they had an interesting conversation this week, uh, and we've got a little clip of it. It was about Raheem Sterling. I use other teams' podcasts and uh, their Twitters uh, and as I said before in the past, the Athletic to sort of keep up on what's happening at other clubs. So when I heard this one, uh, I just sort of thought, well, can we use something here? Uh, get a little clip of it, but it might be something that you're interested in. And if you want to get hold of it, you can find it in all the obvious places you get your podcasts from. So there will be an overhaul, but at the same time, 
you're keeping Edison in place, you're keeping Laporte in place, um, probably Carl Walker and Cancelo. They're not like, well, Cancelo's not like a huge, crucial bit now, but, you know, he's he's there. Um, Rodri and Gundogan will stay. David um, David Silva won't be there, but um, Bernardo Silva's still going to be there. Fantastic player. Kevin De Bruyne is still going to be there. Raheem Sterling, now, there's a situation there where I think his agent wants him to go to Real Madrid quite soon. I don't think City would ever do that in the summer they sell Sane as well. But, you know, maybe in 18 months that might start to be an issue or at least, you know, it's something they need to deal with. But he's going to be there. Aguero's going to be there for another season, maybe another after that, I don't know. See, I would have said Gabriel Jesus would be there, but they're having that kind of a bit of a wobble on that. It's not 1995 when Ferguson got rid of all these great established players and brought in kids. He's still got a great squad to work with. You just freshen it up a bit. You bring in maybe another midfielder, a winger, maybe another striker, a centre-back, a left-back, and all of a sudden... The source, you know, the it's source an of overhaul. transfers they've not been doing in the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah, it's an overhaul, but it's not like a clear-the-deck situation. It's kind of... It, yeah, it, it's a difficult one because you say, oh, this team needs a bit of a refresh, and it sounds like, oh, what about these players? They're all great. You're keeping them. You're just making sure that... You know, like I said earlier, you got a defensive midfielder, maybe, and presumably Rodri will improve for next season. I hope you found that interesting, uh, and that will be on with the rest of our show. You know about the Athletic; it is theathletic.co.uk forward slash the Anfield app. If you'd like to sign up, uh, you can find all sorts of reductions there. But it is worth listening to bits and pieces that are happening, uh, what other teams are up to, and so on. Uh, we'll be back uh, with the show now. Joined by the Athletic, Simon Hughes, uh, to talk about the last couple of pieces he's written. If you want to read them, it's theathletic.co.uk forward slash the Anfield app. And they've been a couple; of, they've seemed quite different but there's been this sort of theme that struck me when I sort of thought of them both together. And the first one was about Liverpool's players and the relationship with Faith. And the second one's about Mo Salah's journey to become the footballer that he is today. But one of the things that sort of hit me with the, when I read them, Si, is that there's this strange celebrity around Liverpool's players that's quite an unorthodox one. And the extent to which they actually, in a way that, when I think about sort of a lot of great sides who've ended up having a former celebrity about them, they've all felt quite similar. You know, the United players, the Class of 92 stuff, uh, the the Spice Boys, if you want to go all the way back to that. All of this sort of thing, it's always felt like there's there's, there's quite straight quite straightforward sort of lines and, and, and types, whereas Liverpool's players are actually hugely disparate. Yeah, yeah, I, I go along with that. I mean, it, it was quite interesting yesterday because I, I wasn't at Melwood for the uh, for the press conference, um, but, but Klopp spoke a little bit about Allison and you know his influence, and I think that the line was something along the lines of you know that at eighteen, not not too many people thought that highly of him. You know that he, he sort of he wasn't certainly not being spoken of as, as, as like sort of the one of the, the world's most expensive goalkeepers six seven years down the line. He wasn't the most obvious sort of goalkeeper to become the national team number one. Um, and I think that that sort of ties in with a lot of the players at Liverpool. Really, you wouldn't have necessarily coupled them all together. You know, the, I think Salah's slightly a different situation because a lot of people in, in in Egypt sort of knew how how talented he was. But he he made some pretty determined decisions. You know, early on in his in his life, really. You know, which goes against what a lot of people, young players, I guess, in Europe make. I mean, he sort of took his own route and and, and took risks on his own future by selecting a slightly more challenging route, I guess. You know, he could have gone to some of the bigger clubs in Egypt, but decided not to. Um, you know, so I, I sort of learned that when I, when, when I went through Egypt. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, that's the one thing that, that, that with this Liverpool team, a lot of the players certainly didn't achieve everything that they maybe wanted to as, as youth players and maybe didn't, um, weren't the players that everybody was saying, you know, oh, he's going to be the next big player and, you know, Alarms to become too comfortable. I think you know a lot of them have sort of reached that point of opportunity 
later on, you know, in, in their um, in their careers at this point in Liverpool where they're all sort of hitting that, that point at the same time. So although they're from like all different backgrounds, you know, the, I think what, what links them all, I guess, is det- determination. Um, and it's quite clear, as you said, I mean, Salah has got a vastly different background to somebody like Alison Becker. But they're both pretty, you know, they've got a religious conscience, both of them. Certainly, Alison bigger than than Salah, I think. Uh, even, but but um, but they're all linked by this theme of, of determination and, and and desperate to sort of not prove people wrong, but prove themselves right. Is there a within those that sort of that 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 collective when you sort of talk about the fact that it is they're all disparate journeys, but with with these things in common, is there a is there a feeling that's been something which Liverpool have actually, if I say looked for, it maybe frames it the wrong way, but a personality type that Liverpool have looked for, that the, you know, yeah. and that you can even, to an extent, almost link against someone who seems completely different again in terms of nationality, in terms of even lifestyle, and that he has the the, the at least the, you know the theory of the pop star partner, Alex Oxlade yeah. Chamberlain, who's, who's had to overcome a fair bit of Arsenal, a fair bit of a fair bit of grief at Arsenal, a fair bit of barracking from the Arsenal supporters, question marks over his, his, his injury record. You know, is there that? Is, do you think they're looking for that stuff that, that that links them when they're looking to recruit? I think so. Yeah, I think they're definitely looking for players who are looking to. I, I don't want to say that point to prove, but 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 sort of get at that theme. You know, players that have still got something to prove. Um, I was I was having a chat with some of my mates the other day, you know, a couple of Evertonians, and they were talking about obviously the players that they've signed. And I was saying, you know, that these players that Everton have signed have, 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 have come from Barcelona, come from bigger clubs, and have taken, let's be fair, a step down to sort of join Everton on big money. Whereas if you look at like Liverpool, the, the signing players in the same calibre that the, the, the Chelsea did when they they obviously had a lot of money. They didn't go out and sign necessarily at the beginning the biggest stars. They, they signed a lot of players like Drogba and Czech who were desperate to make that ne- next step in the career. Who'd obviously had a, a little bit of success but, but had room to, to progress. And I think that's definitely a theme that Liverpool look for. I know when Jürgen yeah, Klopp spoke to Alison Becker when, when he met him, you know, he, he had a discussion about his face. Not like a serious one, just to know a little bit more about how he felt about, you know, about, you know, life and religion and everything else. And I think Klopp likes that sort of thing because, you know, he, he's a man of faith himself. Although, you know, he doesn't speak out all the time, but if you ask him about it, he will always answer a question. He's not shy, but he's not one of those people who sort of, you know, rams it down your throat and, and wants to tell you how much better person he is because he, he's, he's a man of faith. He's more, if you ask him a question, he'll tell you exactly what he thinks. Um, so I think that these sorts of players, I mean, I think... There's a bigger there's a bigger story and a bigger article to be written about faith in football, and I hope to do that at some point. But you know, I do think it's grown again in football. I think because so many footballers listen to some of the lads who speak off the record. You know, they're under so much pressure and so much scrutiny that I think they do take some sort of uh, comfort in, in faith. Now, how serious that is, you know, I think people when you talk about faith. Uh, particularly in football, is that there's a sentence you say, "Oh, well, you know, they're all God botherers," and that, that's not that's not true. I think some of them just use it as a as a, as a cushion, really, to to help them I sometimes. Think, and I think that's I, true. I, of, that's I, true of people in general, isn't it, Sai? I mean, I think is, we've got yeah. to be careful. You and I. I mean, I'm not going to necessarily speak for you, but you know, I'd certainly phrase myself as as an agnostic uh, slash atheist <laughs> in my, in the vicinity here. Although you know, with with the Catholic upbringing and all and everything that comes with that, mm-hmm. but. 
you know, I think what we what we've always got to do when we're trying to have those conversations is is firstly be respectful, but also understand that people can have faith, but it doesn't have to simultaneously be the absolute defining thing in their lives. They can be defined by other things, and I think yeah. that comes over in your piece, actually. You know, for instance, the you the way in which you cite little things that Divock Origi's mentioned as an example that you know that there's there is that that idea that that solace is a perfectly rational thing without sort of having to feel as though you've got to proselytize every single time you you discuss you discuss your faith. Yeah, spot on. I mean, I, I you know, I, I was asked to, to to sort of look at this team initially, you know, not just Liverpool, but but across the board. I've done quite a bit of research into you know other clubs as well, and I think they asked me because I I I'm the same as you. I don't have any religious faith. I was brought up Catholic, but um, I certainly I, I would say I'm an atheist now. And I think it's it's important to look at things a bit more coldly and dispassionately rather than there is a tendency. For people, I was conscious when I, when I was writing it. Uh, you know, it's quite dramatic when you go to Alison Becker's church. You know, there's lots of yeah. singing and dancing and everything else. And for somebody who is not used to that, and I'm certainly not used to it, you know, it, it's, it's quite overwhelming, really. And you, you can you can form either a negative or a positive opinion, or you can just accept it for what it is, and that that helps him through his life without it being an, an overbearing factor on everybody else's. I think he, he he's just. He uses. It seems to me that he uses faith as 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 sort of, you know, a, a guide rather than trying to trying to push it onto everybody else. That might seem, I guess, um, you know, I, I might go against what I've just said. Given that you know, the Firmino it seems like as, as as well, he has sort of converted from a more um, well. He, as far as I was aware, he, he didn't have any religious beliefs mm-hmm. before he came to England, and he, he now does. But I think that's that's part of the wider, you know, the wider theme in the piece that, that obviously in Brazil a lot of footballers are switching to to um, evangelical churches because they feel that the, a lot of poor people in, in poor areas feel that the Catholic Church hasn't done a great deal for them over a number of years, and it just gives them that bit of life that that that, that helps them through some, some darker periods. Now, Alison Becker, you know, from a, a, a relatively you know, sort of what would be described as I, I guess the, the, the rising middle class of Brazil. He, I think he he sort of was attracted to it for different reasons, but it's definitely definitely it's definitely had an impact on the Liverpool team, you know, because he, he's such a calm, calming presence as everybody sees on the football pitch, and, I think and seems seems a big personality off the pitch as well. Science si, certainly from the conversations you've had, he's very, he's very very good around Melwood and all of that sort of stuff, yeah. and good with all the other players. Yeah, yeah, he's. I mean, yeah, I think you know you see him on the pitch. He, that's how he is off the pitch, you know, and I think he. Um, there was a little story in the piece about like sort of you know Dejan Lovren as, as we know can can get quite wound up both on the pitch and off the pitch and I think he he's got a few maybe self worth issues really Lovren about like sort of how he's valued by other people and I was told that last season you know that Alison just went over to him and said look you know we all love you you know you're sort of you know, very valued amongst sort of the group of players and it just sort of calmed them down and for the rest of the season. You know, even though he wasn't in the team, he, he was like, you know, sort of really good around the dressing room. And that's the sort of character Lovren is. You know, they're all sort of very different um, personalities, as you say. I always remember the, the thing that Klopp said at the very beginning. I'm sorry for repeating myself, but but he said that, you know, he wants people who are bright, but not too bright, you know, in, in his dressing room. You know, people who've got interests and everything else, but aren't too overbearing with absolutely everything that they think. So, you know, that, that ties into, I think, faith as well. Okay. 
Excellent stuff. All of it's available to be read uh, on The Athletic uh, with Sai, and he's going to be doing something longer uh, on Faith, which I think will be an absolutely <laughs> fascinating read. Uh, thank you very much to him. Let's uh, move ourselves along. I'm joined by Nathan Powell, writer and director of The Spine, hot from rehearsal uh, for this play, which is played in a number of different places, Liverpool, a couple of libraries around Liverpool, Crew, and Camden. I think everything will do the dates towards the end, Nathan. Uh, but to talk about the play itself, it's about young footballers, the struggles they face, the fact that so few of them get picked up, uh, and then the left to sort of pull the lives around and work out who mm. they are having been pulled out of sort of out of normal lives to try this mad thing yeah exactly so uh i suppose where the play came from is uh, i grew up in south london uh so i had a couple of close friends that played for the crystal palace academy uh and it was really interesting at that time seeing how their lives changed overnight uh, as soon as they reached that uh scholarship apprenticeship uh stage and they were essentially full-time footballers. Uh, and then our lives, uh, I suppose, drifted apart a little bit and they were focused on that because, of course, they have to and they've got to give everything to that. Uh, I think was... we underestimate that, don't we? How much they absolutely... Oh, becomes really? almost like It's almost like becoming a monk yeah. in an ancient time yeah. or something. You know, it just becomes, this is all we do. We're taken away from everyone else yeah. and we just do this thing now. And there's some education, mm. but it's about this thing. Yeah, some, edu- <laughs> some yeah. education. And, and I mean, things. it feels like things have changed now from, uh, I suppose, when I was a bit younger. Uh, but just seeing how, essentially, they were professional footballers without that professional footballer title uh, and they were training every day and they were playing matches at weekends uh, and then it was only when they sort of got to that age of around 17, 18 and some of them started being released and they were told that they weren't going to make it uh, and starting to see some of the fallout of it uh, I started to see some of the real effects that it had on it uh, had on them as as people and as young people as young boys uh, and then that I suppose started to, to get me interested in exploring a bit more about what this Football Academy system was. It was something that I had no idea about. It was just something that some of my mates went off and did, but I had no idea what was actually happening uh, and what they were involved in at the time. It's, it seems like the other thing that it does as well is the strange the strange sort of levels of socialisation that it turns into. So, for instance, a lot of us have formative experiences mm-hmm. around going out, if we're honest about it, around alcohol yeah. and perhaps other substances from certain ages. That I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen in a yeah. in a not. It's even more transgressive. Yeah. It's a different level of transgression. There's mm. that. There's then sort of your relationships with women, the oh, company completely. that you keep. It, these 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 profound impacts yeah. that we do to these young men. Yeah, and, and and we explore some of that stuff in the play as well. So uh, there's there's discussion about what that relationship with women looks like when you're sucked into the system. Uh, and a lot of the people that I interviewed during the process sort of uh, were talking to me about how they got their sexual education from the changing room and yes. uh, those times when they might have been called up to go and train with the first team or something uh, and there's a bunch of grown men in the room talking about their exploits on the weekend and this is where these young impressionable minds are getting some of their sexual education and some of their ideas and views and thoughts about life are being uh, formed in this small super hyper masculine space with mm. a bunch of guys that have sort of uh, at sometimes lived in this uh, sort of bubble wrapped life, I suppose, and it's it's just it feels so separate from the real world. The process of writing is really interesting because I think some people sort of have quite a casual understanding of the idea of people who, who write fiction, uh, mm. who write fiction in whatever form, as though people who write fiction sit in rooms mm-hmm. and r- rationalise through. We've got Zadie in, by the way. This is yes. this is how also how people who write fiction My have to operate. Uh, in the background. Hello, Zadie. <laughs> uh, this is also how people who have write fiction have to operate, but also that you you know, don't just sit in rooms and have ideas and then just pull it all from the air. It's the idea that you've got to go out, you've got to go go through the process of interviewing people. Mm. Then when you're in rehearsal, the play is a live thing uh, and you're working with actors right now and the play isn't just written and they just read your words. You workshop stuff, you're working stuff out. There's 
three or four enormous processes in this, and it isn't just you in a room being clever. Completely, and then, yeah, because I, I, unfortunately, I can't just sit in a room and be clever. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not that clever. Yeah. So uh, when I first started thinking about what the show was going to be, I didn't know what form it was going to take or what was uh, what were the stories that I wanted to tell. So it felt really important that I started by just uh, interviewing people uh, and asking questions, people that had anything to do with the game. So I spoke to some uh, ex-players, I spoke to some coaches, uh, I spoke to some parents of some of the boys that played. Uh, yeah. That's a really interesting uh, story. I, I spoke to people uh, like Kick It Out uh, and and had long conversations with them uh, about the work that they're doing in the game. And all of these stories, everyone had a different story to tell about the game. And it just felt so important uh, that some of these stories were told and uh, the form that it's taken now, I feel like, encapsulates a lot of that stuff. And now you're workshopping it with the actors and that, that, yeah. that's a new phase of life. Yeah, completely. So we've gone through two sort of uh, research and development processes. So we uh, first did one just looking at the story and what story it was that we want to tell and got some actors in the space just to try stuff out for us. Uh, and then we spent another week looking a bit at uh, the form and how we were going to tell the story that we'd developed. And then I think at the moment we're on like draft eight. Uh, and that's uh, and there'll be another draft, no doubt, uh, throughout this rehearsal process as well. So it's just a lot of time refining and and figuring out the best way to tell these stories. It's a, I mean it's exciting stuff, and it's you know the other thing that I'm fascinated by. Firstly, there's a lot of use of music within the play, mm. but also the where you've chosen to take it. For me, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about this, this idealized version of going and doing uh, yeah. theatre in pubs, theatre in libraries. Yeah. But you're actually doing that, aren't you? You're doing it in a couple of libraries around Liverpool. Definitely, definitely, and it feels really important to us that we're. Uh, uh, taking the work out to, to to people that might not want to come to a theatre space and see a bit of theatre. Um, and I suppose there's like something a little bit cheeky and tricksy about uh, pumping it full of music and football and uh, <laughs> kind of tricking people to go yeah, and see so that. You're transgressing in some way, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, yeah, come and see some football and some music. And oh, there's this amazing piece of theatre that it's all packaged in. Um, so just doing our best to, to really show people that the theatre is a place where stories can be told uh, by everyone and any Anyone, and it's a place that everyone is welcome and should be accessing. I mean, we we pay for it. All the work that we do is, you know, subsidised uh, money. So it's it's for everyone, and everyone should have that opportunity to to access it. You've been uh, you come up uh, from originally from London to uh, mm. Twenty Stories High, uh, which based out of Toxteth does lots and lots of of fantastic work. To be honest yeah. with you, there's, there's there's a couple of really good creative directors there. It's 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 a really sort of vibrant uh, vibrant thing going on. Twenty mm. Stories High. There's there's a lot. There's not just what you're you're working on. There's a lot of work going on all the time. Yeah, exactly. So uh, our bread and butter is working with young people. That's what we do. We make work with young people and uh, we make work for young people. So we run uh, a weekly youth theatre. Uh, and we've got an amazing group of people that we're working with at the moment, the most uh, generous and wonderful young people that we're working with to create a new show. So that will be on in the summer. Uh, it's really exciting. It's the first time that we're, uh, we've commissioned a writer to come and make a piece of work for our youth theatre. So we're working with uh, Luke Barnes to create our next uh, youth theatre show. Uh, and then there's a series of, of other outreach work that we do across the city uh, and in Toxteth. Uh, and we're also in development uh, for a new show, which is all about touch and uh, what touch means. So it's, it's a it's busy, it's a busy programme. It is busy. If you want to see what they're up to, it's 20, the, the number 20, storieshigh.org.uk to see everything that's going on there uh, and maybe even get involved. Or if you know someone who might want to get involved, feel free to yes, jump in. This do. this this play that you're, you're bringing out uh, now, uh, I've mentioned uh, two of the, two, it's in a couple of lives, 
libraries, but it's also at the Unity Theatre in Liverpool City Centre. It's going down to London. It's in Crew. Do you want to give us all the all the dates, the spe- yes, specifics? Yes, definitely. So we open at the Unity Theatre, uh, and we play the Uni- Unity Theatre from the 13th to the 15th of February. So. Uh, if you've got nothing better to do on Valentine's night, come and join us and watch some football. Uh, and then we go to Crew on the 18th of February, and then we're at Prescott Library on the 20th of February. Uh, then we've got a couple of shows at the Highton Library Culture Hub on the 21st, uh, and then we take the show down to London. So on the 25th and 26th of February, we're at Stratford Circus Art Centre, uh, and then the 27th to the 29th, we finish up at uh, our partners Camden People's Theatre. So please do come and join us if you can. Loads of opportunities wherever you're based in the country to uh, to, to to come and see the play. Uh, it is good to support theatre, theatre that takes risks and theatre that enjoys young yes, people. Uh, exactly. That is that is the purpose of the enterprise, yeah? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's what they want. Uh, go and see uh, The Spine by Nathan. Uh, hope you, If you do so, enjoy it. Uh, I'm going to try and get down to one of the nights. Uh, it should be a belter. And it's John Gibbons for the Anfield app doing the Last Fan Standing quiz. And Last Fan Standing is a quiz app that you can play on your mobile phone. It's completely free to download. It's a lot of fun. And so we'd encourage you to get involved, not just because you can prove how in the know you are and prove that you know more about Liverpool than any other Liverpool fan, but also you can win yourself a few quid uh, on match days up to three hours before the each kickoff you can play the predicted quiz and you're in for a chance for a winner a decent amount of money and I know lots of you who listen to the Anfield app have been winners so well in to you aren't you clever um, so we're just going to have a bit of a demonstration here um, and to play along and he's already worn a piece of Anfield app merchandise just for being the first to go back on the Facebook subscribers group is Nick Bridgman so Nick welcome to the show Thank you very much. Um, I mean, this is going to go out in, in the build-up to the Shrewsbury game, and it's you know a few questions are related to to, to Shrewsbury and, and the FA Cup. And I've just learned that uh, you actually live there at the moment. Uh, I don't know. I don't live there. No, I'm from. I uh, live in London, but I'm from Shrewsbury originally. I do apologise. You're from there, so I mean, is are you still in contact with people from Shrewsbury? Is, is the town buzzing with excitement to host the Reds? Uh, yeah, obviously. I mean, greatest team in the world coming to play there. It doesn't happen every week. Um, yeah, so um, I'm hoping for a you know handsome win for the Reds, but you know, not nothing embarrassing for the Shrews. <laughs> uh, well, I think it'll be tight. I think it'll be tight, but uh, obviously we're all hoping Liverpool kind of go through. But um, yeah, so we'll play the quiz now. How it works is you stay in until you get one wrong. So it is the last fan standing format that we sort of copy on this. So stay until you get one wrong, Nick. Um, so hopefully start with an easy one, uh, unless you were you were blind drunk at the weekend and you've got no recollection. But who scored Liverpool's first goal against Man United uh, at the weekend on Sunday? Was it Mo Salah or Virgil Van Dijk? That was Verge. It was Big Verge indeed. Uh, number two, have Liverpool ever played Shrewsbury before? Yes or no? No. It's yes, sorry, in the 1996 oh, no. FA Cup. I can't believe you didn't get that. You're from Shrewsbury. We played them oh, in the 96 FA Cup. before my time, mate. Was, <laughs> you say 96? Yeah. Yeah, I was five. Oh, there you are. I think it was an Anfield oh. as well, so maybe you were thinking they hadn't played them there. But, uh, oh, if Feels like a bit of a dumb squib now, but will it? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. You've had someone on from Shrewsbury, and you've got the Shrewsbury question wrong. Yeah. Oh dear. I'm going to look this up and see what actually. Just, just, just to check it is right. Um, yeah, 1996. Uh, Shrewsbury versus Liverpool. So Shrewsbury at home. It was in the fourth round of the FA Cup. So yeah. So I can't even. I can't even say it wasn't. Wasn't. Wasn't correct. I did. I did try for you, but um, I mean, how would you approach the FA Cup this season? Because obviously Liverpool 
feel like you've got sort of bigger fish to fry. There's the there's the league campaign which is going so well, and obviously the Champions League, which we'd love to to go deep in again. Um, you know, what's what's your sort of views on the FA Cup and and sort of what you know what sort of teams you should play and how we should approach it? I mean, obviously, I want to win everything that we're in this season, <laughs> but I kind of feel like he needs to stay loyal to the uh, to the players that beat the Ev. Um, you know, uh, give Curtis another game. Um, but I feel like anyone will get the job done at the moment. With just any, t- apart from obviously the Villa game in the League Cup, just every team Jurgen puts out this season just finds a way to win. Yeah. So yeah, I. I that's, uh, Stay loyal that's to the boys. I agree. I agree with you, and I think he will. I think he'll he'll pick a sort of similarish team, albeit with a few back from injury that played against Everton, and of course beats Everton as well. Uh, but thanks a lot for Nick for, for joining in. Shame you only got one. I don't think that's troubling the leaderboard <laughs> too much, to be honest with you. But uh, but you got involved. You'll get some Anfield that merch in the post, and um, yeah, I hope you uh, enjoy the game at the weekend. A pleasure to be joined by the New York Times' own Rory Smith to talk about the I would say myth knocking around that the league is in some way weaker this season than it ever has been for generations because Liverpool appear to be at the top of it by a million miles. I mean, that's one version of events. I don't quite understand how people talking their own football team down makes them feel better about Liverpool's success, but maybe we'll get into that as well. Rory, it's to me, this is something which is basically, when people are saying the league's weaker than ever, what they actually mean is I support Tottenham, Chelsea, Manchester United, uh, Arsenal, possibly Everton, and I think we might be weaker than ever, and I'm very annoyed Liverpool are top. Yeah, I'm guessing that there's not many like Leicester and Wolves and Sheffield United fans who think that the lead is, is weaker than ever. I think that it's not necessarily just the fans of those clubs. I think they, and this is something you've alluded to, I think, that um, I think they draw so much focus, the, the big six traditionally draw so much focus, but that's kind of our gauge for, for, for how good the lead is. And I'm just not convinced that that's a particularly effective way of thinking about it. So it, it may be that this Premier League season overall is is a bit weaker, is a lot weaker, is roughly the same, is a bit stronger, whatever. But I don't think that saying the teams that traditionally should be competing for the Champions League are not as good as they normally are, therefore the league is weak, has any real scientific merit. I, I, I'd always be inclined to kind of think, well, if you're judging the strength of a league, you probably need to, you could look at, look at Europe, and I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, and that's something that, that a lot of people have sort of cited saying you've got to look at European results. That's the only way of comparing. I'm not sure that's very scientific either, if I'm completely honest. But I'd, I'd be inclined to look at the kind of at the lead as a whole almost to say, well, the strength of the lead is, is it not maybe kind of what the quality of teams in mid table is? Is it not maybe what the, uh, the, the strength of teams at the bottom is? There, there have to be better gauges than just are Man United any good? Yeah, uh, the answer to that is no, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, there is the, 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 one of the things that I, I'm chatting away to people at the minute about the cup and who's going to arrest people and who isn't. And one of the things that you, you, know, you look at the Premier League table there, and you know, not, Watford are in 19th and they're on 23 points to play 24. You can go right the way up there to Brighton are in 15th, play 24, 25 points. Then there's a bulk of teams on 30. So Arsenal, Palace, Everton, Burnley, Newcastle all sit on 30 points. And one of the things that when I sort of look at that, this could be end actually end up being one of the highest relegation totals, one of the highest 17th place totals there's been for a few years. It wouldn't surprise me if that ends up being, or if it goes at the current rate, it'll end up being around 30, 36, 37, 38, maybe up to 40, 41 for the first time in a few years, which suggests that what's down there is as competitive, at least amongst itself as it's ever been, but I would say going up the division as well. 
Yeah, I think if you, in recent years, the, the, the mark managers still talk about getting to 40 points. And that, that's because in the last five, six years, 40 points has often not even been just surviving. It's been kind of comfortably in the lower end of mid-table. Um, I think this season will be back closer towards that. It may not be that, that like Norwich and Bournemouth, say, get, get up to 36, 37, 38. But I think the quite a few of the others who, who are still in contention for relegation probably will it will be a high total and that does suggest that it suggests that those teams are better but it also suggests i think there's more equality between the the bulk of the league so if you think about kind of teams like newcastle who to most sort of most measurements most metrics most observers probably aren't that good um they are they're having a perfectly comfortable season and will get far more than 40 points but i think that teams like that aren't materially different to the team's maybe six, seven places below them. I think that even Sheffield United, who've had a brilliant season, um, the gap between them and, say, West Ham, in terms of actual personnel and stuff and performance level, probably not that much higher. Sheffield United just have a good plan. And even with with Arsenal, and to an extent Man United and Spurs, it's it, what it kind of proves is that there is now this, this, middle, this sprawling middle class, I think, in the Premier League that encompasses pretty much everybody from about eighth to about 17th, maybe even further than that. And it doesn't take much to join them from the bottom. It just takes, a, you know, some clever signing, some 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 smart thinking, uh, a good style of play, a manager with a plan. But it also doesn't take a huge amount to join them from the top to to sort of slip into that. And what we've seen with United and Arsenal is that they've become middle of the road pretty quickly, despite all the money that certainly United have available and the the kind of prestige that, that's attached to Arsenal. So I think it, it's maybe not a satisfactory way of thinking about it. I don't know if the lead's weaker. But I think there's there's maybe less variation in the teams. And that's why we're seeing United and Arsenal and Spurs, to an extent, look so ordinary. But it's also why there's this sense that teams can't win lots of games in a row, that teams aren't going on runs, that, that everyone is, beat, is capable of beating everyone down below a certain point, maybe, maybe, maybe apart from the top three. And it's because the money, the money in the league has helped the smaller teams get big and stupidity for want of a better word has helped some of the bigger teams get small if you see what I mean well just on that I think that United are a really interesting case study in that they make three signings in the summer and you can make really nice arguments for all three of them that they can go to Manchester United and they can kick on Wan-Bissaka, Maguire and James and that they've all had moments this season games where they've looked looked like you know very, very good players, and I would argue that all three of them are, well, two of the three of them are very, very good players, and the other one is most definitely useful in James. But to kick on, you almost need to have the framework to kick on. There's no point talking about Manchester United as a springboard if someone's pulled the springboard away, uh, the thing that helps you jump. And that's sort of what, what what I'm thinking. I think that's almost what you're saying there, that if if you know, if you're buying, if you're paying 80 million for the player you perceive to be Leicester's best player, and then when he gets to Manchester United, the framework around him isn't as strong as Leicester's framework was, then giving him an armband isn't going to give him some sort of restorative magical powers. What he needs is the framework around him in order to be the player that he was that you bought, or even more than that, if you were invested in potential. Yeah, I mean, United are kind of a separate case almost, but I think what they do, what they do illustrate really well is that spending money is no longer enough in the Premier League, and I would say it's no longer enough across Europe, particularly. Um, and you can probably, you can probably kind of fold the, the struggles of the teams like PSG in the Champions League into the same the same kind of basic pattern. United have spent lots and lots of money, 
what they haven't had is any kind of clear thinking, like a cogent plan, a, a vision of what they want to be. It's all been very haphazard, all been very messy. And I think that what they prove is that you need all of that other stuff as well now to succeed. And it's, it's no surprise that the teams that, that are definitely overperforming where they're meant to be, who are first and foremost Leicester, Wolves, Sheffield United, but to an extent you can say the same of Liverpool, are the teams with a plan, an identity, a clarity of thought, who have, who have signed players knowing where they want to use them. And they don't all get them right. They're not, they, they don't all, all succeed, obviously. Um, but if you think about Leicester, they, they knew that Maguire would go the summer that he went. They knew that, they, that there would come a point where they weren't able to resist the amount of money being offered to, for him. because They knew that United and City were both, were both trailing him. So they went out and signed Chadla Soyuncu and Benkovic. And they basically said, right, you've both got a year to prove that you can be his successor. And Soyuncu stayed at Leicester and kind of appeared occasionally. Benkovic went out on loan, played regularly. And they, they, whether, that, whether, whether that was deliberately done because they thought that was what each player needed at the, the sort of comparative stages in their development, I don't know. But when it came to the, the summer, Maguire went and they said to Soyuncu, right, you are now, you're our guy. You're, you're going to be our central defender. And although his form's dipped a bit in the last few weeks, it's worked. Manchester United thinking is not nearly that clear. It's not as sharp, and it's not as the, the, their foresight is 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 much more lacking, effectively. And I think that's what that's a really important lesson for all teams about Manchester United. That if you don't have that structure, that framework around the players, it doesn't matter how good the players that you sign are. And to be honest, you go through that United squad, and I know we've all got accustomed to sort of laughing at them. But their players are mostly pretty good. They're yeah. not. They're not. They're not elite players. Obviously, they're not as good as the Man United team in two thousand eight or the the, the thirty treble team. They're not. They're not one of the great Premier League teams. But they're all internationals. They're all talented. They've got a lot of talented young players. They've got a lot of experience. Someone like Nemanja Matic has become this figure of fun. Nemanja Matic is a really experienced elite central midfielder. He might be a bit slow, but he. It, it's he's not like a clown. He's he's a Premier League title winner on I think more than one occasion. Yeah. And I, I, I think that United are a, they're a cautionary tale that we should be now almost coming to the post-money era in the Premier League because everyone's got so much of it that you need something else to differentiate yourself. And that's definitely a factor in terms of making the league look like it is. Because all of these teams have got loads of money. You have to, to be good now, to, to hit that standard of good, you have to do something clever with it. There's something also I think that I've never I've never known quite the the variation to be as as great as it is week by week. I mean to sort of rattle through seventh to fourteenth. I think you can argue that each of these football teams plays pretty differently, and in fact, maybe the first two are the closest to belying that. Wolverhampton Wanderers, Sheffield United, both play a back three, both are quite experimental with it, both have got a little bit going on, so there's maybe a similarity there, but then Sheffield United to Southampton, Southampton with the very, very high aggressive press. Southampton to Arteta, Arteta following through on uh, his Guardiola experience and building that Arsenal side. Arsenal then into Crystal Palace, uh, Arteta to Hodgson, you couldn't get more different in every single way. Uh, Palace then through into into uh, Everton, uh, under Carlo Ancelotti again there's differences there then you've got Everton into Burnley and then maybe another bit of a similarity Burnley into Newcastle United although they are profoundly different formations and then Newcastle United into Brighton and Hove Albion with Graham Potter and playing a different type of football and I think this is one of the things I'm, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm, I'm lying to myself about about previous years but I don't know if I used to feel as though you'd play 
what felt like in 0809 the same Premier League sides every single week <laughs> where maybe the maybe the left winger would be better than last last week's left winger but everyone's broadly speaking playing a variation on 4-2-3-1 and some have got better players in some areas some have got better players in the others but that's just what you're dealing with every single time you step onto the pitch yeah i think that's probably right that there is that there are greater tactical varieties in the in the premier league i think if you yeah if you speak to most managers they'd say that the premier league is now much more sort of tactically adept than it used to be um and as you say you, you are facing different challenges and that might be why results are so inconsistent because different formations different approaches different systems will fare better against different approaches different formations different systems than they will against others so it might be that the back three that sheffield united play is is much more effective against certain types of teams than it is against other types of teams. Although I realise, as I say it, that Sheffield United are quite poor examples. They've been pretty effective against basically everybody. Um, you know, Wolves, Wolves will be able to get Adama Traore into, different, into better positions certain weeks than they are in other weeks. Yeah. And that, that, cost, that comes at a cost of consistency. There's, the one thing that's really struck me is how, how inconsistent ev- everybody is. So you get to the stage where Southampton who about six weeks ago were going to be relegated, could now probably get a Europa League place. If they keep their form up, there's half a chance they, they, they finish in the top six. Uh, Chelsea... Have can, we, been... can we just have a lovely chat, by the way, about Southampton's next run of league games? I mean, I know this is almost off the point in a sense, but Southampton are at home to... Uh, sorry, are away at Liverpool. And by the way, I think they'll give Liverpool a proper game. Then they are at home to Burnley, at home to Villa, away at West Ham, at home to Newcastle, away at Norwich, and then at home to Arsenal. And that takes us through to the 21st of March. Now, you're saying... I'm, all I'm saying is that if Southampton limit their ambitions at sixth, they're doing it wrong for me. Do you think they can go higher? And they can go higher. I mean, Chelsea, Chelsea, as you tweeted humorously last night, haven't won a game since August. Yeah, uh, yeah United have just got done at Burn- got done at home to Burnley and would were dire in the process. Uh, Tottenham cannot put any degree of a run together. Maybe Wolves can, but they've got the Europa League distraction as well. Now, I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying that if Southampton keep playing as they're playing and literally keep the process up, keep the standards up, it wouldn't surprise you if out of those seven games I've just named, Southampton get more than 15 points. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I agree with you completely that Southampton will certainly give Liverpool a game. It, it depends. I think that that probably depends on how, how brave Hassan Huttel is with the high press at Anfield. I think that would be the, that's the one query. Do you go and go toe-to-toe with Liverpool at Anfield? Or do you have to change because it's sort of out of respect for the opponent? But beyond that, there's no reason why they can't get 15 points out of, out of those games, not a shadow of a doubt. And that, in this season, will probably be enough, certainly to put them into contention. The one team that I do think could put a run together are Spurs, just because they have that underlying quality. Chelsea are still very young, they're very inconsistent. If you look at the number of games that people like Mason Mount have played in his first ever Premier League season, he is going to be burnt out, I would say, by the middle of March. Not a, not a chance he makes it through the, through the rest of the season at the level he started at. Um, Arsenal, I think, are resigned to an extent to being up and down. United, not resigned to it, but also up and down. Solskjaer has got this ability to, to get results when he really needs them, but you, you, you can always be pretty sure that once he's done that, he will lose away at Watford. Um, so it, it's, it, would be, it would be Spurs that I'd look at as the potential team that could find that consistency. Uh, but, the, but I've got a sneaky suspicion that Wolves could do it, to be perfectly honest. that Obviously, after, after Thursday night, they've played Liverpool twice, they've played City twice. I don't think there's, there's any reason for them to fear any other team in the league. The one thing that, that makes you think they might, they might hit a wall at some point is the number of games they've played. And certainly within the Wolves camp, 
I think there's a degree of kind of awareness that there's teams below them that might, that have greater resources to go on that sort of run than Wolves have. If they can add two or three more bodies over the next sort of 10 days of the transfer window, maybe. They, they are as good as any of the traditional elite, without a shadow of a doubt, with the exceptions of Liverpool and Man City. So I don't see why they can't finish top four. Southampton, it's probably... Probably a bit, bit of, a bit of an ask, but I yeah that run of fixtures after after Anfield certainly makes you think they can. There's no reason for them not to be thinking we can get fifth, sixth, seventh pretty pretty easily. Uh, so quickly we we're surmising that this is the, the the league is the league as it is. It's very difficult to judge, but broadly speaking, it's 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 a it's a strong league this season. It just may not be maybe not be one that that for instance hugely interests certain types of journalists and uh, TV coverage. Well, I think yeah, as we as, as as we both said, and I think we both agree, which always makes for great content. The uh, <laughs> um, the the fact that those other four of the big six are bad colours the way we think about the league without a shadow of a doubt. I think it's probably not a classic Premier League. I think if you look look back in the round, you'd probably say those years when there was an established top four was when the Premier League itself was strongest because those four were all good. Um, it's now a little bit more up and down. Someone on Twitter again made the point that if you look at the, the, the quality of coaches, you've gone from kind of Klopp, Guardiola, Pochettino, Mourinho... Emery, although his name is now Maud, of course, but, you know, an established European coach. And Sarri, you've now got Lampard, Solskjaer and Arteta in three of those jobs and who, who, who are kind of learning on the job. That's unusual. But the other thing that we've not touched on that I think is really key is the Premier League is never as good as it thinks it is. That we, yes. we, we nostalgicise it so much, so quickly. That if you go through most Premier League... I go to a lot of Premier League games and... Most of those games that don't involve the elite teams are pretty bad. They're, the standard in terms of overall kind of yep. eyeball impression is probably higher now than it than it was four, five, six years ago. Because, as you said, those teams are getting smarter. They're, there's teams that are doing really good things. Leicester Wolves and Sheffield United being the three really obvious examples. Um, there is that there is that sense of a rising middle or teams rising out of that middle class, and that means there's there's it's much easier for the for the, the the established elite to fall but overall the premier league always has like 10 quite average teams in it to be perfectly honest and that that's not different this season so i don't think it, it could be a little bit weaker it could be a little bit stronger it could be basically the same but there's the variation of quality is not huge it is just the premier league and the fact that you've got a team on top of it who have got this frankly unmaintainable record is kind of highlighting that um but whether the quality is any sort of distinctly lower further down, I, I just I don't think that's true. I think we are being tricked by the fact that four of the teams we think should be good basically aren't. OK, excellent stuff from Rory, as ever. Uh, let's move ourselves on. Thanks to Neil and Rory there. So we're going to look ahead now to, to Shrewsbury on Sunday. And Mike, this game sort of crept up on us because we we played literally only last night. Um, we're playing again on Sunday, but... We are expecting, um, you know, a fully changed lineup, or at least you're going to see a good few of the kids come in, and maybe a couple of players who, who need some minutes in the legs. So, who would you say needs minutes in the legs the most at the minute going into this on Sunday? Um, I think Fabinho, Matip, and Lovren. Lovren is probably the one I'm least sure about because he's been in training the least out of the three that are back. Um, I, I would probably go Adrian, Nico Williams at right back, Matip and Lovren if they can. Uh, Yasser Larucci, and then some sort of combination of Fabinho, uh, Chamberlain, 
Curtis Jones. Nola Lana. Nola Lana, actually, I forgot all about him, to be honest. Sorry, Adam, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then Minamino, if, he, if his calf isn't too bad. Arigi, Elliot. We've got, you know, we've got a, a decent enough team there. No, let's, let's be honest. Seems a bit tight on Shirovella, that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, you know yeah. The cheery yeah, fella. I forgot all about him. The cheery fella. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, to be honest, yeah, actually, I think now you mentioned Shirovella, um, I think he will play. I just think it, Fabinho's had minutes off the bench twice now, a little bit against United and um, and last night, as we record. So he'll probably get an hour or so just, just, but just for fitness. Definitely um, needs the minutes, doesn't he? Yeah, he definitely, definitely needs the minutes. I think if he gets an hour or so Sunday after playing 20 minutes last night, and then he'll get a good half an hour again off the bench maybe against West Ham, if not another hour start, because mm. it's a few, four or five days, four days, and after uh, Sunday. Uh, they're, they're, they're the, the, the injuries are the main fellas that you need the, the, the minutes in. Yeah. Minamino got a good 50, 60 minutes last night at the time as well. Um, Origi, you probably want Origi to stay sharp just in case. So, I, apart from them, I, I really want to see Curtis Jones get some more minutes as well because I, 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 want to, I want to start getting him off the bench in the Premier League games because I want him to get a medal. <laughs> he just is one. Yeah, he does. I mean, Claire, we, how, how bothered are you about this tie on Sunday? Because I feel like my mind has changed the more I think about it, especially with how well Liverpool are doing in the league. And if, if Liverpool keep winning at the rate they're winning it and could win the league fairly early, I want to make sure that we're making the most of all these competitions. For once, we seem like we've got on paper a nice little draw. It's about time. Do you know what I mean? We had that boss game with Everton. We had the moment with Curtis Jones. These kids have played well. They've done well in the League Cup for us as well. We had the 5-5. Are you excited for this game on Sunday? Because I think I am. I'm looking forward to seeing this other Liverpool side play. Yeah, I am really looking forward to seeing them play. And I think really with the FA Cup, we seem to have been given a bit of a short straw. The last few seasons, we've gone out really, really early when we could have used our kids and used our squad um, to see how far we've gone. The Everton result, massive. Um, and yeah, I think like Ian said, win it all. I mean, this is this is one of those trophies we've not won for so, so long um, and I want it. But for me in team selection, I'd give them all a go that played against Everton. But obviously we haven't got the defender, have he's gone back to Stuttgart. Oh yeah, so either Matip or Lovren. But I, you know, they did really well that game and I think they deserve all of them to at least start and yes Fabinho needs minutes I agree and maybe Shakiri as well no one's mentioned him mm. but then them lads deserve to at least be on that starting sheet for me um, and when I was here last time I said obviously want to win it all would love to go unbeaten but I think if we do uh, do well in the FA Cup get further in the Champions League win it before the end of the season then these kids can beat definitely the bottom half of that Premier League so that's when Curtis Jones I think gets his chance so yeah. you're saying you're saying there then would you say that you wouldn't want Fabinho to start then because you'd rather see the same team in terms of loyalty or would you prioritise Fabinho getting minutes in his legs for the for the you know the sort of running for the season? Personally, I can see why you want minutes in his legs, but my opinion, I, I I'd bring him on off the bench. He's had a couple of he's been on twice, hasn't he? Um, it's a quick succession game to turn around, so I'd have him on the bench and I'd bring him on and I'd start with the midfield that started against Everton. He might also get centre half, you know. Cause oh, it's a good shout, actually. Good point, yeah. Just because Phillips is not there anymore, Claire. Claire do Matip and, and Fabinho. Yeah, she rem- Claire just reminds me of, of Phillips not existing <laughs> for the for the sole purpose <laughs> too to, many games. to destroy <laughs> too Everton, many players. like morale. Um, <laughs> so Fabinho might actually get a centre half. 
That's not a bad shout. I didn't even think about that because Lovren is only just back in training. Yeah. He might not even be fit enough yet. Um, so it might be massive for Fabinho, actually. That'd be quite interesting. Ian, what's your take on it? Um, on on the FA Cup as well. So, I mean, like like I've just said, I'm quite excited. I think we've grown a little bit of a... Not, I don't want to say soft spot because there are players, but these young lads feel just as much as part of the first team. We talk about them as fondly. We're just excited to watch them um, as well as the first team. But and it's 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 another opportunity, for, another opportunity for them to go quite far. I mean, you're not expecting them to go through this round, aren't you? Then all of a sudden, what? You're in the fifth round of the FA Cup. Well, if the draw um, opens up the way City's draw for the FA Cup has opened up the last two years, then these lads could go to the final. And I would still trust them to do the job completely. And yeah, I'm. I don't know if I'd say I'm, I'm excited for um, for Sunday. I'm looking forward to sitting down watching the game of football. It's quite relaxing, isn't it? Yeah, in there's, a way. there's, it's no there's not much pressure. Yeah, and I do expect to win because I expect the lads who played against Everton. If you can do that to Everton's first team, you can be Shrewsbury. I, I don't think I don't think that's an issue. Um, I'm somewhere between Mike and Claire on this one. It's it's, it's very much. I can see both sides of the arguments. I like the idea because I think Fabinho needs minutes because uh, we do need him for the rest of the season. But I think, yeah, he could play centre-back. And as soon as you said Lovren, I kind of had this shiver down my spine <laughs> going, if there's one player I could see having a mistake in him against Shrewsbury, it'd be Lovren on like two days training. No disrespect to the lad, but he needs rhythm to play. Yeah. Um, and he, he did play alongside Virgil and was excellent. Uh, but I would feel more secure with Fabinho next matter up there. Uh, which then does open up the midfield for, for sure. Vela's play again, and, and these lads do deserve the chance again. Um, I, I want to win the FA Cup. We haven't won it since 2006, have we? No. Last time we won it's the Gerrard final. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we got to the final in 2012, didn't we? And it comes sort of yeah, an answer to nothing. We, we kind of, we left it all behind in the semi-final that year, yeah, though, didn't yeah. we? Because the semi, we'd, we'd enjoyed ourselves so much at the semi-final against Everton. You, you could feel the atmosphere beforehand in, in the pub. The, it was kind of like, this is just a game. The, the biggie was the semi-final. Yeah. And it, it just, it didn't feel right. And even that's eight years ago. Mm. So, you know, winning the FA Cup, again, win everything. Just win everything. <laughs> just win everything. Um, so, Ian, just to go, I want to just go back to you then. So, we, we talked in the first part, obviously, we're looking at, we've got West Ham midweek, which is our game in hand. West Ham away, obviously, we, we struggled last year. It is a different game um, this year, I think, oh, because David of the, in David charge Moyes, now. West Ham away. <laughs> Southampton um, on the Saturday as well. So, are you seeing any of the players that started last night against Wolves in that starting lineup on Sunday or not? No, not a single one. No, no. I'd, I'd, I'd be amazed. I think you'd, I'm not even sure who you'd put on the bench. You might put, as we did against Everton, you had a couple of senior players on the bench. Manny was on the bench against Everton, wasn't he? I, yeah, I mean, we just spoke needed. there, though, haven't we? Gone like, I mean, Claire brought up uh, Shakiri, and obviously, if Lovren might be on the bench, there'll, there'll still yeah. be a Well, you can imagine bench. Lovren on the bench. Um, Lalana came on, didn't he? So. Lalana is a chest infection at the moment, I believe. He, he's what a about chest Milner? infection that Virgil was supposed to have. Um, Milner and are quite far away. Is Milner Milner's not back in training yet? No. Is he? Because he wasn't. He didn't even travel with the squad last night. So you wouldn't imagine Milner and Case are going to be available. So possibly Lalana on the bench as you know a break glass job because he will just keep hold of the ball for you. Possibly you can make a case for possibly having Mo on the bench as as an emergency if you need to. But other than that, I don't know who else. Sometimes you'd probably it's with. just someone I think sitting there is a bit of a. A bit, bit of a, a threat. A bit of a threat to go. Have you seen who sat there just in case we need him? Mm, I mean, it might. It will. It will show how 
Seriously, Jurgen Klopp will be taking it if he does put one one of those players on the bench. I'm saying because because for me, I think um, the you the, we're bringing up names there like Pedro Shiravella. If he doesn't start, he's going to be on the bench. Um, like say Adam Milana, he either starts or is on the bench. I think like the players that need minutes, but. If you did see um, a Mo Salah or if you did see a Genie or if you did see a fullback, even though they're the ones actually I think he'll rest the most uh, no matter what. He'll probably do um, Nico Williams, Wony, uh, right back. And I mean, use Kiana Hover on the bench then. Yeah, it'd, yeah. It'd, be, it'd show a statement of intent, wouldn't it? At the, the Derby game, there was no Virgil, Firmino or Salah in the squad. So I think he'd be along, I think he'll do the same thing. Yeah. Even with, even with Mane's little tweak uh, that he felt in the Wolves game. I just don't think he's. I think he's right. I think these lads deserve to get the game. Um, why? Why shouldn't they've they've coped? The pressure's off in this game to a certain extent, but they have played in a, a real pressure environment where no Liverpool fan wanted to lose that game. Obviously, you don't want to lose any game, but the derby at home when you've not when the when your rivals haven't won there for twenty years and we put the kids out and everyone's head goes a little bit like oh. What's going on there? And then we go and all have that game and they learn a lot from that game. This one now, you can say, well, right, the cameras were on you. You're on the telly at that Everton game. So, yeah, your performance was up where it needs to be. Go to Shrewsbury away where they're going to be right into, get right into you. Go and do the same again because this is what you need to do now to further your progression at Liverpool. So I'm all right with them going and leaving the likes of Salah, you know, Firmino and Van Dijk at home. Get your feet up. Have a nice little day off because we've got a big game on Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at Shrewsbury. That obviously League One, 16th in League One, no win in the last five league games, one win in the last seven, um, couple of draws, lost um, five, two, three. Play a bit compact. They should have enough to overcome them, I think. And I think you've sort of talked talk me around now to to the kids playing and, and having just a couple more of the, the senior ones who are on the fringe, if you want to call that, on the bench because not only is he preparing for West Ham midweek. He's got to keep some of them fresh because no doubt he'll probably rotate for for Southampton as well. Southampton's a tough game, you know. They're, yeah. they're really in good form. Danny Ings. Mm. Danny Ings is, is I'm, you know what? I'm pleased. I'm really pleased with Danny Ings. But if he if he does even go anywhere near our goal, <laughs> I will not be pleased for him anymore. Look, I know we've got a massive cushion, and I know it's all it's all going really well for us at the moment. But I'm happy enough to to go and see that kid team of kids with with you know the likes of maybe Matip and Fabinho getting minutes. I'm happy for them to go and take their chance on Sunday. Um, I say it's a bit of a tight turnaround, West Ham to Southampton, but then we've got a break. So I think Jürgen will be saying to the, I think he's been saying it all along, but I think he's definitely getting large with the message now. Just get, just get through this week. Mm. You know, you've had, you've had, you've had your Wolves game, so they probably already know they're not have a few days off. Get your feet up on Sunday, back in on Monday for training. Mm. Big game against West Ham and Southampton. Then, then they're off. And I think Jürgen. Has actually given them this time off, and yeah, in between not, the two not games, we're not going anywhere, are we? So we're not going anywhere. I think that's probably because you know, but we're we've had such an intense season. Um, you, we've seen in the past people have days off and and respond respond to it really well. And you know, there also is the possibility of the replay. But that again, if that does happen, I think that'll be a similar team. That was honestly on Sunday. You've also got to think it's been mentioned very quietly a couple of times this week. We're currently in pre-season again as well. He's got them in full pre-season conditioning at the moment, so that they're doing full conditioning training and then playing in the the demanding period of play that we've had. So this week off 
is going to be a fully toned, fully fully trained, fully fit team having a week off to come back completely fresh as well. So the actual time of this is brilliant. So we can go, okay, no warm weather training. This is just you are now you you've been you've been pre seasoned again, which he's done in the middle of each season, um, as long as he's been here. And he's got the team absolutely sticking over. I think also we get to the point where post the Shrewsbury game, within this run of six games, there is the chance to rotate one or two players per game. So you could see the likes of Jones get a game. You could see Nico Williams get a game at right back to put Trent down onto the bench just to give him a rest. So we've we've got the full condition and we've got the full preseason and we don't necessarily have to use every single player that we've used every single game for for the foreseeable couple of months until the City game. Yeah, listen, we always say enjoy this Liverpool side, but enjoy the one that's going to play on Sunday as well. It'll be probably the same sort of feeling going into the Everton game. It'll just be fairly relaxed, I imagine, for a lot of fans. And, and there's, there's a side there that were just as desperate to win as, as the main 11. Listen, that's been your weekend. I just want to just want to say that in for the weekend's game uh, against Shrewsbury, we are doing the hot mic commentary again. So um, it's going to be John Gibbons and Jay McKenna in the hot seat for this one. So I'll be producing it. And it's a good laugh. You should get onto hot mic. Um, so if you go onto their website, hotmic.io, you can download the app and you'll have to put an invite code in. So your invite code is Anfield Rap, not the Anfield Rap, but Anfield Rap, all one word. Um, and to be brutally honest, the reason we do that is because that's how we get paid and that's how they know that um, we are sending people to their app, basically. Um, and it helps us. It's really great. If you if you go on it, find us on there, follow us, and then basically you can um, listen to our commentary instead of the, the commentary on the telly. So um, it, it's a good laugh. John and Ben John have done it last night, so I'll just leave that one up to the imaginations to some of the things that were said during that game. Um, it's really easy. There's loads of instructions on the app how to do it, but all you've got to do basically is turn your telly up, press a sync button, and then your phone does all the magic for you, and then you get an alternative commentary, and you get to listen to us being a bit silly, um, but loving the Reds as well at the same time. Uh, thanks very much to Mike Keeney, to Claire Brookfield, to Ian Salmon. Uh, that's been your weekender. Social Podcast Network.